Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, the controversial blockbuster film Joker has the last laugh, smashing box office records despite deeply split reviews. Tyler Perry outdoes Hollywood on his own terms. iTunes is now history. And why are superstar singer Beyonce and a New England event planning company locked in a trademark battle? It's our pop culture roundtable. Later in the show, it isn't a musical, but music and dance are at the heart of the smash hit play Choir Boy, which has blown audiences away during its extended Boston run. An inside look at the creative forces that help bring the show to life. But first, joining me in the studio, Rachel Rubin, professor of American studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Callie. And Michael Jeffries, an associate professor of American studies at Wellesley College. Hello, Michael. Hi, Callie. I'm glad to have you both. Let's start off this way. I want to take a listen to the trailer of the controversial film Joker. This is starring Joaquin Phoenix. My mother always tells me to smile and put on a happy face. She told me I had a purpose to bring laughter and joy to the world. Is it just me? Or is it getting crazier out there? Okay, as I've said, uh, blew away all the box office returns. I'm very happy about that. I would never go see it because I'm too scared of scary films. But there are larger issues here, Rachel. Yeah, and I, I definitely am going to go see it. You said mixed reviews, but I've only seen negative ones. So that's fascinating. But one thing I think is clear is that sort of the film itself, but also the character named the Joker, they're sort of revealing the seriousness of humor. Mm. And um, because the movie, I mean, I'm probably going to cry as much as laugh. And there have been people throughout sort of America's cultural history who have made comments like that. Like Langston Hughes, poet Langston Hughes said in multiple contexts, laughing to keep from crying. Right. And so this film, from the little bit I've seen, he laughs because he's hurt. And he just, like, laughs this, like, bitter, sad laugh. And sort of he's a joker. He, he becomes a joker and wears the mask, but it gets ripped aside, mm. right? And you see he's suffering and not actually happy. So, so um, as Rachel has pointed out, you know, one of the interesting parts of this is all this psychological piece of it, right. um, Michael. And some people have taken it to the next level saying they're concerned that it had, may have a triggering effect on people in a violent way because we see him sort of devolving, the character devolving throughout the film. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I have two minds about this. One, I think it's, you're right, that 
it points to some very serious issues with respect to mental health, violence, etc. But I'm very suspicious of explanations for violence. And in particular, the kinds of violence that we've seen recently, public incidents of violence that have something to do with gun control or the lack thereof, and connecting those two pieces of art, film, television. There are violent and disturbing films that are released in Japan, and there are violent and disturbing films that are released in the United Kingdom. They may have similar mental health issues in those countries, but they don't have the same mass shooting problems that we see in the United States. So uh, I think if you want to talk about mass shootings in particular and the particular kinds of public terror incidents that we're seeing now, we've got to look at things like the NRA and gun Mm -hmm. culture in this country rather than film and television. If you want to talk about mental health issue, you need to talk about the fact that we incarcerate people as our primary means of dealing with people who are dealing with mental illness, mm. that's a failed policy for generations, yet that's our policy in this country. Mm-hmm. So I think it's kind of misleading narrative to say the movie is going to cause or exacerbate the problems that we're seeing in these two dimensions. I mean, okay. it, it's also true that mentally ill people are not more violent than people who aren't mentally ill. Yes. And people like frequently just sort of use that as an attack form but it's not true. Hmm. Good point. All right, moving on. I don't know what to say. iTunes is gone. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Apple uh, just announced quietly, really, iTunes is gone. And I had to think about, what do you mean iTunes is gone? This is part of their upgrade. And I guess if you have the Catalina update, it goes away. And now what they're recognizing is that iTunes became a sort of central place for many kinds of media, not just music. Anyway, what do you guys think about this? It's not that old. It feels weird. No, (laughs) it's not that old. I use iTunes a lot. You know, when I listen to music with headphones, I still have an MP3 player because I still have a flip phone, you know. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. But hanging on, Rachel. Yeah. Okay. I'm hanging on. And I get, you know, yeah. I must admit, I get like more and more, you know, pressure not to hang on. But I also, the more I see people just like staring at their phone with one hand and pushing a baby in a stroller with the other, I'm like, I'm, no, I'm not going there. But I think that there's this like quick evolution of technology, I think Mm. it's just a consumerist thing, right? Now everybody has to sort of buy something new. That has always sort of been the case, right? But it's been so much sped up. Yeah. Like we even, the tiny things, you know, I got a new Apple laptop. And so now you have to buy new connectors to connect it with things and like that Right? I mean, that's just nothing. Like, why did they do that? (laughs) That has nothing to do with new technology. Mm. So, and is it also, Michael, our consuming of more media? I don't know. I mean, that's an interesting question, right? Mm. Is it is it something about the rate of consumption or the practices of consumption that are doing this? I, I think for me, there are couple of other pieces. One is it's a generational thing. iTunes, for those of us who grew up when it first came out, it was a huge, it was like a revelation. And it became something that was very closely associated with the Apple brand. But since then, it's become obviously uh, superfluous to what Apple needs in order to operate and profit. And it's been replaced by Spotify and Stitcher and a whole bunch of other streaming uh, services where you can get your podcasts and your music. So for younger folks, it was never that culturally resonant for them. I mean, when when the iPod first came out, you know, there were those commercials of people with the iPods on, those black and white commercials, and it was highly stylized. And when the iPod mini came out and you could run with it and you didn't, mm-hmm. I mean, this was a huge, so it was part of a kind of cultural shift. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and mm-hmm. for people who didn't undergo that shift, I think they're just going to be like, okay, I'm still on Spotify. Why do I care about iTunes? I, I think for those of us who, who were around when it first popped, 
this is like a major, <laughs> major shift. But for, for other folks, it's like, eh, move on to the next thing. I think you're right, because I, I just realized as you were speaking, it's kind of an organizing place for me. I know I can just push that button or click on it and I can find all my stuff. But now I'm going to be required to think. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, moving on. I just want to note that uh, Diane Carroll, pioneering star of Julia and Dynasty, for that might not mean a lot for many people. She's dead at 84. Before we have a discussion about her and where she was in the sort of spectrum of Hollywood history, here's a clip of Diane Carroll and Lloyd Noah. Nolan in Julia, TV show which ran from September 1968 to March 1971. Make yourself as handsome as you can manage. I'm tired of looking at ugly nurses. I married one. I'll do my best, sir. But has Mr. Colton told you? Tell me what. I'm colored. What color are you? I'm a Negro. You always been a Negro? You're just trying to be fashionable. <laughs> Nine o'clock. Try and be pretty. Now, we listen to that, and it obviously has some problematic sexism issues, which I never paid attention to before, because at the time, the issue was race and the fact that she was a portraying a middle-class working black person, black woman in this instance, of course, just doing a regular job, and it was huge on television. It was huge on mm -hmm. television, and I mean, I have definitely watched some episodes of it. And yes, there are these very sexist aspects. But racially, it's just very careful, like not to be at all controversial. The, the episodes like these days, you're just like, wait, what? You know, it's just like a little bland because they're being careful because it was a very early show to have a black woman as the star. And an interesting thing about it is that there were so many people who wrote letters to the company, you know, the, the, the studio about it, and they identified themselves all the time. And then I teach about this, a unit about this, mm. so it's in my mm. mind. And, the, you know, the black writers would say, okay, here's where you should take it. And some white writers would say, you know, why are you doing this? You know, it was, it was very interesting. Mm. So it, it's one of those things that points out how that reception is as much defining of meaning right, as the people who made it. Because if you watch it, it's just really bland, but people just got all worked up about it, and it did break ground. Michael. Yeah, mm. we take it for granted now, but again, mm. it, most so many of the roles on t television and film that were reserved for black folks during that time were, they were basically domestic roles, right? Folks, I mean, their profession was domestic, domestic workers. Domestic workers, mm. yes, absolutely. Their, their profession That's was domestic true. workers. So to see someone in a different profession, right, uh, as you said, a middle-class profession and a black woman at that, that is revolutionary. I mean, we should also note that Carol was in the business for a very long time. I mean, she was someone who got her break early and worked in film and television. She won a Tony Award. So she was really one of the first, like, multiple sport all-stars among black women in film and TV in this country. Country. And she doesn't have the same notoriety, I don't think, as folks like Portier, for example. Yes. Right? We don't talk about her in that same light. When you look at her career, we really need to reconsider her kind of place in the pantheon. When you look at folks like Halle Berry, like there is no Halle Berry without Carol, for example. And she would say that. Yes. Halle Berry oh, no would doubt. say that. Yeah. The actors yeah. know. Yeah. Viola Davis, yeah. Halle Berry, right. they know. Mm -hmm. But I don't think the general public has the same sense of her place in history. Yeah, I do hope that in the wake of her death that people would revisit, you know, what her legacy has meant. She was fabulous on so many levels. What I think is very interesting is that here we have Diane Carroll dying days before Tyler Perry. People may know him from the Medea films, independent producer. He now opened a studio in Atlanta, 
bigger than, just to be clear, Disney, Warner Brothers, Paramount, Fox, and Sony's lots combined. That's how big it is. This is privately owned by him. Um, And by the way, if you put all those pieces together, you would still have 60 more acres to spare. Um, He's very proud to have built it on a former Confederate Army base because he's a black man. And isn't this interesting? He's always been outside of Hollywood with both his stories and what he wanted to do and basing it in Atlanta. And one more little quirk, uh, Gail King of CBS This Morning was doing an interview about the opening of this groundbreaking historic studio. They had already planned for it to be in one of the 12 buildings that he has named after icons like Sidney Poitier and Oprah and Diane Carroll. Mm -hmm. And the interview was scheduled for the Diane Carroll building. And then they discovered that she had died. So it kind of has kind of a spiritual little connection there. Anyway, what does it mean for somebody to have uh, this kind of space and potentially this kind of money-making power, which he continues to have, Rachel, and continues to be ignored? I know. It's really (laughs) quite something, isn't it? Um, As I said, I am somewhat torn about this because there isn't a boycott going on that he has to break. And I realize that he poured in all his money before the boycott, and it's sort of hard to do that. So what I hope is that he works and finds a creative way to support the boycott while being there. Just so people understand, there is a boycott against the anti-abortion bill, which is now in limbo now because the judge has put an injunction against it, but it passed. And so a lot of actors, including some like Tiffany Haddish, the comedian people may know, who attended Tyler Perry's opening, have said they will not work in Georgia as long as that ruling is in place. The other problem he has is a union one. Mm -hmm. um, So we should put that on the table as well. And apparently they're having discussions, but um, most of his place in Atlanta is non-union and they're having some issues around that. Okay, continue, Michael. Right. So his politics are something that he's going to have to work out and work through. I mean, with all of this power, he's going to have to now start addressing questions that he's dodged somewhat, um, somewhat. I mean, he's he's had to speak on these issues before, but he's going to be more front and center now. And if you look at the films that he's made, these aren't the kinds of things, in my opinion, that represent radical black politics in film. Um, But the thing that I'm interested in is with the space he's built, is he going to be able to bring in more black creators who have a wider range of political and cultural sensibilities than he does? Mm. That's the thing. Because he can. Exactly. That's right. We're talking about we're Mm -hmm. not now we're talking about the potential for a diversity of blackness, Mm -hmm. diversity of black perspectives Mm -hmm. in a way that you just can't get right now in Hollywood where they want the Kevin Hart movie or the Tiffany Haddish movie or the Denzel Washington action film and those are the Will Smith action film. Mm -hmm. Those are the kinds of things we see over and over again. But with all that space, right, it, someone's got to fill it and build something and make something there. And if the black creators are, are able to kind of do their own thing without him kind of looking over their shoulder, which I suspect they will be, we should see a range of representations of blackness there that maybe we wouldn't expect right. in more traditional Hollywood studios. Hmm. I agree. And I also think that one of the things that's really important about tracking its development is that it does show sort of the multiple places where meaning is created, where there's political influence, right? Because it isn't just the films itself. It's who makes them. It's Mm -hmm. the conditions under which they make them. them. Who distributes them. Mm -hmm. Like all of that. Mm -hmm. And so watching this thing develop, I think, is very fascinating to to learn about all of those things. Yeah. Well, attending Tyler Perry's huge opening, which drew all kinds of folks, uh, as a surprise guest, 
Beyonce Knowles and her husband, Jay-Z. Many people know her and know him. Fascinatingly, Beyonce's in a trademark dispute with a local woman here in Boston. People may know that Beyonce's daughter's name is Blue Ivy. Veronica Morales owns a shop. It's a event shop called Blue Ivy Events. And now Beyonce is saying that Blue Ivy is a cultural icon. I'm sorry, I'm laughing. And so that this is trademark infringement. I need for you all to speak to that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's ambitious. It's an ambitious effort. Well, it's ambitious in some ways, but like the first thing that I saw, thought about it is like, like, don't commodify your daughter. Mm, Good point. I never even thought that way. That just hurts my feelings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The other side of that is, aren't other people going to do it already, right? So is it really Beyonce's fault if she gets commodified? I mean, I'm not really sympathetic to the effort, right? But she's in some ways powerless to prevent this from happening. She could, as you suggested, she doesn't have to contribute to it in the way that she is. I, I just think it's yet another kind of data point that, confirms how obsessed both Jay-Z and Beyonce are with controlling, right, Mm. creative control Mm. over every kind of idea they have, every, you know, Jay-Z mapped this out very, very early in his career. And to some extent, Beyonce has a, a different model with her parents really educating her about the music business and the entertainment business very, very early in her life. So this is kind of part of their training as entrepreneurs. And in some ways, it shows that what they're doing as parents, you know, they're, they're business folks first and everything else seems to right. follow that that model. That doesn't mean they cannot possibly be good parents to their daughter, but that's the way that we have to kind of understand their parenting. Right. And they're, they really are. They're business people. And I mean, to be fair, there are so many people who are, you know, celebrities who do things that commodify their kids. They're just I guess the, they probably have people, you know, people who advise them about business. But and we've seen worse examples, especially oh, with musicians yeah. forcing uh, their kids to be musicians from the yeah. time they're five or right. six years For old. Instance. So they're not doing that. Yeah, it's a lot. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are our pop culture contributors, American Studies professors Rachel Rubin and Michael Jeffries, and we're discussing the latest pop culture stories you need to know. Now, pop culture can teach. Beyonce's dad, Matthew Knowles announced that he has uh, breast cancer, and a lot of people didn't know men can have breast cancer. Here he is, father of Beyonce Knowles Carter and Solange Knowles, and also a singer, discussing his breast cancer diagnosis with Michael Strahan on Good Morning America. When you get the diagnosis that, yes, you have breast cancer, what goes through your mind? Of all the things I could get, why would I get this? From a man's perspective, I'm thinking, why me? So, I mean, he came out publicly. That's really, he didn't have to say anything at all. It does mean uh, for people who understand how uh, breast cancer works that both Beyonce and Solange are now more at risk for breast cancer. But I thought it was pretty brave. He never impressed me as somebody who, you know, wanted to be public in this way. Yes, it is somewhat out of character for him. I mean, he's had a huge influence, as I mentioned, on Beyonce's career, yet we know very little about him, I think, relative to some of the other showbiz parents that that we know about. I think there are two angles on this, right? One is just from the masculinity and gender angle, right? Raising awareness on that scale. And then 
In terms of public health and medicine and the relationship with black people and black men in particular, some of the stereotypes around black masculinity and pain and disease, to me, any kind of open discussion and disclosure in this way from someone who's a cisgendered black man in the public spotlight is going to be a productive thing. I mean, we don't hear this kind of discussion of uh, disease and engagement with, with medicine and managing disease from figures like him that frequently. Yeah, no, I I absolutely agree. And I also think it's very important for men to come forward when they have breast cancer, partly because, you know, a lot of people don't even know they can. And, you know, partly because, I mean, I'm just going to say this up front. You know, when I was in my 30s, I had serious breast cancer. And I'm so sorry, Rachel. Oh, I'm Mm -hmm. fine now. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I had little kids then. The only thing people focused on was looks, like how Mm -hmm. it's going to look afterward. Mm -hmm. And I think if, you know, with men, there's not this similar connection of looks. And so maybe it will shift the debate for, for women, too, a little bit. Well, it's certainly gotten a lot of attention, which was his point. So I think that's, Mm -hmm. that's important. Mattel, you know, not generally known to be forward-thinking, I think. They have a new gender-inclusive doll line. So first, let's take a listen to this ad. It's from Creatable World, and they're introducing their new gender-inclusive doll line. Introducing Creatable World, a doll line designed to keep labels out and invite everyone in. Making play more inclusive than ever before. Now, I want to raise that because um, you were just talking about, you know, issues around masculinity and femininity, for that matter, and looks. And here is Mattel in a commercial way. Of course, they're trying to make money, but addressing what's happening in right now. I think it's pretty powerful. I think it is pretty powerful. I mean, I agree with you that mm-hmm. Mattel is just trying to make money, but that doesn't mean that the people who, you know, use the dolls or give them to their kids, kids, don't find it powerful and helpful. I know the doll is meant to be gender neutral, but, you know, if you think about it, like even when you buy dolls that are girls or dolls that are boys, they're seriously like defining what that means, mm. you know, um, just by what they look like and what they wear and, and so forth. And um, I think that this is going to challenge this. Were you surprised, Michael? You have little kids. Actually, that's where my mind went to because I've been watching more uh, kids programming and commercials these days, not by choice, but <laughs> just a reality of my Seen life. Seen a lot of Frozen, have you? Oh, oh goodness. <laughs> um, I could sing the song for you right now if you want me to, but... <laughs> And the Barbie commercials now, like the tagline at the end of the Barbie commercial is you can be anything, Mm. which is a very different image in terms of gender expectations and like the purpose of the Barbie experience. Mm -hmm. Very different from what I grew up with and I think from what most listeners grew up with as well. So it is this step toward the gender neutral doll is actually kind of in line with some other instances where it seems like their awareness has been kicked up a notch about what's going on out there. The other thing that I thought of was in looking at small children play with dolls, one of the kinds of dolls they play with is like the infant doll, like the baby doll. Mm. That doll is actually quite gender inclusive or gender neutral. Like if you just have a baby with no clothing on Mm. and like the kid will be dragging the doll into daycare with Mm-hmm. them, him or her, mm-hmm. and I'll say, who is this? And they'll say, this is my baby. Right? A two-year-old won't necessarily say, this is my baby, her name is Emily, or this mm-hmm. is my baby, his name is David. They'll just say, this is baby. Mm. And so in that way, I think that children are often primed for and ready for, from a much earlier age, that kind of gender neutrality. And now the company is kind of meeting that sensibility of where the kids are as well, not just the broader society, but 
Like we can see evidence of that from a very small age that it seems natural to them that the gender thing would be neutral or ambiguous. All right, let's indulge in some nostalgia because there's a lot of nostalgic thing looking back on pop culture that has become either historic or iconic in some way. One of the big things is Mariah Carey's Christmas song. I know it's early, but she made the announcement and people may not know that her Christmas song is one of the most popular. Let's take a listen first in case you've forgotten it. This is Mariah Carey's 1995 hit, All I Want for Christmas is You. So everybody knows the song. Why mess with it? She's updating it on a new album with a bunch of other Christmas songs. But I just think it's interesting. It's to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the hit with a re-release if I were she, I would just play the old one, but okay. But <laughs> what do you all think about it? I mean, it's fascinating interest in this song every year. And here she is, you know, capitalizing on it in, a, in an interesting way. Well, and I do think it's interesting. Obviously, as a historian, I'm like, okay, and why, why does she change it? And what does that say? And so on. I think it's a thing that frequently happens, too. I think, like, clothing goes out of style for a while mm. and then comes back in. There is a thing in, you know, Hollywood where a movie that was, I, most of the time, it just has, like, a particular cult following. But then they will do, like, a much later sequel or remake, right? Right now they're talking about remaking The Princess Bride. So I think, you know, Christmas is a time where, like, nostalgia is a big deal, you know, and it sort of makes sense to be doing that. You know, there are, like, big uh, rock and roll groups who, like, travel after their moment and perform songs on an album of theirs. But they perform the same songs the same way, because that's what I want to hear if I go to... Don't be they messing perform, with it, Mariah. I think they perform the same song the same way. And yes, it is interesting. Like, probably somebody said, okay, you have to make it new so people will buy both or something. I don't know. Okay. So, Michael. I feel like another part of this is the stage of her career. Like, I've, I, sometimes I think, you know, most people's most recent memories of Mariah Carey are like sort of not being at her best on a New Year's Eve special or some reality show or some... Do you know what I mean? So yeah. I don't think she's really been taken seriously as an artist for 10 years, time, 20, yeah. 20, 15 years, 20 years. In my view, her effort to remind mm. people, like, I made hits. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, big hits. Hits. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. No, yeah. that's right. And I don't know if this next one will be a hit in the same way the first one was, but at least it's a reminder to the public that, like, I am still a serious artist. I'm not just this kind of figure who pops up once a year on New Year's Eve and you tune in to see whether I'm going to have a terrible performance. I was an icon for a while, so Mm -hmm. let me remind you of Mm -hmm. of who I am. Mm -hmm. And speaking of remakes, uh, they're remaking Will Smith and Martin Lawrence's famous Bad Boys movies. They did two. They're doing another one. And Will Smith, just in the whole arena of nostalgia, is recreating clothing based on his hit, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Do y'all have the same thing to say about this nostalgic turn? <laughs> <laughs> I kind of have the same thing to say, mm-hmm. right? He's like, I can make money off of this. And you do see it with clothing. Well, my daughter, like, I could see that it became 15 or 20 years later to, like, wear clothing, you know, from the 70s, mm-hmm. from the 90s. But I have to admit, First of all, I think this movie is in a different category because while it does invoke the other ones, it really moves forward in certain ways. I mean, I watched the preview and it was like, 
They had really modern, you know, hip hop music on the soundtrack, mm. and they swore so much. Oh dear! I'm just saying. That sometimes <laughs> not things, surprising to Sometimes you things yeah. move along, yeah. and sometimes they're just looking back. And so there are those categories. I guess there's probably some overlap. So what this means, though, then, um, Michael, is that there's an audience for this, a younger audience for this, because the older audience is like, yeah, okay, well, yeah, we know this, and maybe we'll go see this. But it's really the clothing, and to some extent, the movie for p- which people never saw the other ones is aimed at young people. It is. Yeah, I think that's the difference between this and the Carrie thing. Is like, I don't think anyone was clamoring for the remake of the Christmas song, right? It wasn't like yeah, she was yeah. responding to yeah. a public outcry. You were saying, like, just leave it the way it is. <laughs> I mean, you just look around at what younger people are wearing these days. I wouldn't even say that that's, like, cutting-edge fashion anymore, but it's definitely the 80s came back. Like, there's no question mm-hmm. about, did. about that. So he's he sees a market that's already there, and he seems to be capitalizing on it. I, I, I feel a little bit differently about this one than the, the Carrie one. All right, so there's a few things that are happening with the image and the culture around Asian Americans in the pop culture arena. One is Dave Chappelle's latest stand-up, in which he's been severely chastised for what has been called not only homophobic, but also racist jokes about Asians. But also going forward, just as I want to put it all together so people can see where I'm going, a lot of consternation happened when SNL, that would be Saturday Night Live, hired Shane Gillis, a stand-up comedian who had a podcast that was rife with Asian-American stereotypes and ugliness. Damn, Chinatown's nuts. It's crazy. It is full China. I wonder how that started. They just built one f***ed up looking building and people were like, all right, no one said anything. Let Let's live there. huh?" <laughs> he was fired before he started. And then they had already decided to hire an Asian-American actor, Bowen Yang, who is now on the show. Throw that in the mix. Constance Wu making a statement. I'm not a role model. And if I want to say something that's not right with the model minority gratefulness that I have to be. Stop talking to me about it. So there's a lot going on with the stereotypes and not. And by the way, uh, Sandra Oh came out when Shane Gillis uh, wrote his thing and said this quote was lazy ass unoriginal. I would like to you know, get from you all with all of this going on out here in pop culture world. What is that message? So first, here's a clip from Dave Chappelle's special, Sticks and Stones. What if I was Chinese? But, but born in this body, that's not funny. <laughs> and for the rest of my life, I had to go around making that face. Hey, everybody, I'm Chinese! <laughs> and everyone get mad, stop making that face, that's offensive. What? <laughs> this is how I feel inside. <laughs> Just respond, I, I don't know where to go here. I think... Some of the stuff that has been said about it is right on the mark. Like, it's tired. It's not funny. Chappelle, in particular, has switched in his career from someone who used to do a lot of punching up at powerful people and power structures to now someone who has made a lot of money and seems miffed that he's one of the powerful folks who sometimes is being targeted. And now he's standing with folks like Louis C.K., refusing to apologize for things like this and his transphobic jokes and his homophobic jokes, etc. So Chappelle, I think, is one element of this. And it's part of this narrative that comedians should never have to apologize and that part of their job is to offend people. Mm-hmm. We know it's much more complicated than that. And if you look around, there are other people in the culture, comedians. Eddie Murphy, for example, mm. just recently said 
he regrets and apologized for his content about AIDS and gay people early in his career. He talked about how immature he was and how he grimaces when he sees those old clips of himself. So if an icon like that can get to that level of awareness, I'm hoping that five or ten years down the line, Chappelle will get there too. On the SNL thing, Lorne Michaels hired this comedian specifically because he knew he would be more conservative and controversial. And then he basically got caught right in the public. And people said, you know, the things that he's done are over the line and you're going to alienate viewers. And it doesn't really advance comedy at all. If what NSNL is supposed to be doing is pushing the boundaries of comedy, there's nothing original about this. Which was Sandra O's point. Exactly. There's nothing yeah. cutting edge about this. How are you moving the art of comedy forward by doing this kind of humor? Yeah. So from a com- comedy perspective and a politics perspective, consumer politics perspective, it was a mistake. And I'm glad they chose not to go through with the hire. So two things. Shane Gillis said, Rachel, if someone was offended, I guess I feel bad about that, but this is comedy, as Michael has said. Secondly, Dave Chappelle said, I'm married to an Asian woman, so doesn't that make it okay? Oh, God. Just sound, just That's telling just you. a very familiar format, right? <laughs> I have lots of black friends. Yeah, I'm not a racist. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Stand-up comedy just says, like, look, we're trying to push past all sorts of boundaries. Like, that's what we do. It's just leveling, though. It's like saying any boundary you push is the same as pushing other boundaries, mm-hmm. you know? Like, Louis C.K., even after he had that horror show revelation during the Me Too time, but then some Somebody recorded a stand-up show of his in New York, and he said horrifying stuff in numerous directions, right? And so I sort of feel like, all right, you can push boundaries about what's funny, but pushing all boundaries is not the same. And I will say, on a more positive note on this, Bowen Yang's, I guess this is his first appearance as a part of the cast, was extremely funny, playing a Chinese ambassador taunting America about tariffs. All right, well, China can't keep this going forever. Oh, yeah? Well, you need us more than we need you, because we can survive without your movie starring The Rock. But good luck without iPhones. How are you going to text us in the middle of the night, like, you up? Can you investigate Joe Biden for me, stupid? So it was very well written, and it was appropriate and all of that. So to that extent, you know, they're doing something well. Let me wrap up on one positive thing, and that is Monopoly. So this is Hasbro. They have revamped Monopoly so that it addresses the gender pay gap. Let me get a response from you, too. <laughs> well, uh, two PC. Some people would say that says two PC. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> I mean, if your kids are going to play in Monopoly, they should be educated somehow, right? So I think that's very useful. There have been like many, many sort of jokey reissues of Monopoly over the years, but this, this is just like telling it like it is. I appreciate that. The goal of Monopoly is also like to impose capitalist suffering mm. on, <laughs> on, your, okay. on your opponents. So they may want to. My parents didn't let me play no, for that reason. No, there are plenty of parents who, f- who feel that way. Really? Yes. Um, so they may want to think you know, what it means to win and lose, right, under mm-hmm. those conditions as well. But I'm happy to see the at least the gender pay cut. They're catching up to, what was it, 1963, 64, yeah. when the Equal Pay Act was. So they're 50 years late, but we'll take it. Well, the gender pay gap, by the way, is still 50 years late. If I may just make a political <laughs> statement. But and on that note, <laughs> thank you both for joining Thanks, me. Thanks, Callie. Thank Thanks, you. Michael. <laughs> uh, Rachel Rubin is a professor of American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Michael Jeffries is an associate professor of American Studies at Wellesley.
Wellesley College. Coming up, ethics, faith, and strength are the pillars on which the fictional Charles R. Drew Prep School for Boys builds its reputation and the young black men it cultivates. Talented singer Ferris Young finally has his chance to lead the school's legendary gospel choir, but not all of his classmates see him as the appropriate choice. That's the premise of Choir Boy, a heartfelt new play from Moonlight screenwriter Terrell Alvin McCraney. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. Church getting high, higher Jerusalem, ring them bells. You're listening to Rocking Jerusalem, a musical number from the Boston production of the smash hit Broadway show Choir Boy. The playwright is Terrell Alvin McCraney, who also won an Oscar for writing the screenplay for the movie Moonlight. Choir Boy features a creative mix of musical genres, African-American spirituals and hip-hop rhythms, plus the cultural percussive dance known as Step. Set in a fictional boarding school for young Black men, Choir Boy explores the themes of Black masculinity, queerness, and spirituality. Music and dance are at the center of the dramatic production, and joining me in the studio are the music and dance professionals who brought it all to life. Yuande Odetto Yinbo, Boston-based actor, dancer, and co-choreographer for Choir Boy. Hello, Yuande. Hello. And also with me, Ruka White, assistant professor of dance at the Boston Conservatory at Berkeley and co-choreographer for Choir Boy. Hello. Hello. And David Freeman Coleman, choral director and lecturer of music at Tufts University and music director for Choir Boy. Hello, David. I'm so glad to be here. Thank I'm you. glad to have all of you. So just so people understand the plot, it's set at the Charles R. Drew Prep School. It's a conservative Christian-based school, clearly set in the South somewhere. It's all young black men, and they're trying to come to grips with who they are and also deal with their sexual orientation at the same time. But so much of the elements of the play, it's not a musical, just so everybody knows, understands that. <laughs> it's a play, are musical and dance elements. And so I wanted to talk to you all about how you made that integral to the production itself. I know that Terrell wrote this outline, but you have to bring it out and make it be what it is. So, Ruka, I'll start with you. Well, the choreography, there are elements of vogue and there are elements of step. The voguing represents this sort of idea of like this queer futurity of what the world could sort of be like if we were sort of to fully be able to sort of express ourselves and not be so restricted by what masculinity should look like. And the stepping, which Yawande and I collaborated on, has its African roots way back in Africa and throughout the transatlantic slave trade with our ancestors first setting foot here, coming up with the dance ring shout and, you know, using their bodies and using stepping to sort of make a connection to uh, the metaphysical or the spirit. So it's all sort of connecting back to those ideas. Let me play a little bit so people can hear. I mean, you have to see it, but here's a little bit of what it sounds like. Break it down, true! So it's very rhythmic, and it's very connected to the earth as well, Yawande. 
Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right? Because I just want to, you know, let people understand, you know, why this was, you know, so important in this piece. And as I understand it, this is the first time step has been used in the play. Well, they did use some step in the Broadway production. Mm-hmm. So all the productions before that didn't have step. So that's something that uh, Camille A. Brown and the team decided to put into the show, kind of just to show what the, uh, I guess, standard of masculinity should be mm-hmm. in society for black men, for black men at Drew. What is a Drew man is a big question that comes up. A Drew man should be masculine. A Drew man never tells on his brother. And so this is an idea that we're all uh, striving to be the same type of man. So all of the step is very synchronized. In sync, everybody's doing the same thing and it's very percussive, very masculine. And going back to what Ruka said about the slave trade, like the first thing that they took away from us when we came over here was our drums. Mm. So Mm. we had to use our bodies, you Mm -hmm. know, to emulate the sounds Mm -hmm. of drums. Mm -hmm. That makes the connection with, you know, these young men because they come out and they're all of a piece. They feel like one Mm -hmm. uh, when you first see them and they burst onto the stage with Mm -hmm. the step. It's very impressive and it grabs you. Mm-hmm. Um, people in the audience that I was in were screaming back at them. Oh. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and it was very exciting. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, and it, also, it touches on those elements, sort of like these African aesthetics, like polymeters, polyrhythms, the groundedness, and also the virtuosity that is sort of inherent in the African aesthetic. You can see, you know, some of our ancestors like Bill Bojangles Robinson and Gregory Hines. Famous and, tappers. Yeah. Right, yeah. these tappers. Right. That's Ruka White, my guest, and it's also Yawande Odedo Yenbo. Uh, the two are co choreographers for Choir Boy. I'm going to move over now to uh, musical director David Freeman Coleman, who did the music, and I want to have the same question to you, which is about the connectedness of the history of the spirituals. Now, there's a lot of different music genres, but the core piece are the spirituals and hymns, old fashioned hymns, I would say, too. What you'll find in the script of Choir Boy are direct lyrics from Negro spirituals. What you won't find in the script is the specific arrangements of those spirituals, and you certainly don't see a lot of references to dance. And as you saw when you watched the show, our version of Choir Boy has evolved from what that original script set to involve the Negro spirituals in the show into something that's even more connected to the spiritual tradition, you often will see step shows as just a dance element, and you will often see choirs perform spirituals, but you rarely get to see the same group doing the step as doing the singing, and that's what's unique about Choir Boy. And I don't think the original intent Mm -hmm. was that, but I think what we've achieved is this amazing connectedness to the history of the tradition in a new, fresh way. So let me pause you there and let me play Motherless Child, which is an example of what you're saying, the blending of both the step and the dance and the singing. Can you hear my mother calling me? She's calling me. I can hear her calling me. I can hear her calling me. I can hear her calling me. I've never seen uh, Step used that way, as you said, but I've also never seen Step in a mournful song, you know, one that's not so upbeat and assertive. It was quite powerful. It is powerful, and that, that particular number is the one that people walk away from being moved by the most, I think. It's a the longest 
musical number in the show, and it goes from starting out as a solo to a full four-part harmony with multiple soloists and stepping, and the soloing, as you heard, uh, is so passionate. Uh, it becomes a worship service on stage, and it definitely bleeds out into the audience. It's it's very powerful. This is my guest music director, David Freeman Coleman. He did the musical direction for Choir Boy. What I want to talk to you about is circle back to your talking about the arrangements being contemporary or right now or however you want to explain it. Because a lot of the songs, and particularly struck by Trust and Obey, the hymn, it's old-fashioned. I heard it. It just brought me right back to, you know, I'm from Memphis, Tennessee, so I heard this song a billion times in church. But, you know, it's always, it's particularly in my conservative Baptist church, you know, very, the arrangement was nothing like what you did with it on the stage. So, Most of the musical arrangements were arranged by Jason Michael Webb, who was the music director for the Broadway production, who got a special Tony Award in June this year for that, which is very rare that a musician or music director get any acknowledgement from the Tony's Award. He's a young black man who's doing really well in theater, but he has a strong gospel choir background and a strong church background. So, As those, do you. <laughs> true. And yeah. I spoke with him at length before the production because mm-hmm. I wanted to do his arrangements justice. We did our own versions of his arrangements. I can't leave his name out of the credits for that. The Trust and Obey arrangement, it's funny you should say that because when I taught Trust and Obey to the boys the first time, they were kind of making up their own thing and their own melodies. And I'm like, nope, it's got to be this note. Da-na-na. It's got to be do me so. You can't be like me fa so. And, you know, and, and, and uh, it took them a second to realize that this has to be perfect mm-hmm. because it's the school alma mater in a way. It's got to be the same way that they hear it every time. And we can't make up our own version. I gave them some license to riff a little bit, but... It had to be harmonically and melodically accurate to the hymn. And you're right, that traditional hymn is very different than the more jazz or R&B-infused arrangements that you'll hear later in the play. That's by design. Uh, the alma mater is supposed to be uh, something traditional and that never changes. Okay, well, let's hear a little bit of Trust and Obey. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word what a glory he sheds on our way while we do his good that's trust and obey from choir boy production going on right now I'm Callie Crossley. You're listening to the Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and my guests are choreographers Ruka White and Yawande Odetto Yinbo and music director David Freeman Coleman, and we're discussing the roles of music and dance, particularly in the Boston production of the smash hit. One of you mentioned, but what keeps getting amplified by both the music and the dance is the sort of tension between singularness and then groupness and what it means to, you know, be your own person and then try to fit in with the crowd. And I wanted you each to speak to that as you began to do your work on these uh, essential elements of the play. You know, how, did you feel that? And, and and how did you work toward getting both the cast, who are excellent, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and realizing that through the songs and the dance? An element of African music and certainly African-American music styles is called call and response, where a single person calls out and the mass congregation or group that's with them person responds. You see it in black church music all the time. You see it in dance as well. Call and response 
works creatively as well. The first thing that we did was they said, we need to hear the music because they didn't have anything to choreograph off of because it was just lyrics on mm-hmm. in the script. <laughs> so they needed to hear what the music sounded like. So I made recordings of all the songs with just me singing um, <laughs> yes, so that they could use as a basis to start getting an idea. And so in that way, they called, I responded, they used my call mm. and then they responded and then they took their call and then the actors responded and now everybody is getting the call from the actors and they're responding and here we are. Oh, okay. Um, Yawanda. I think as far as the choreography, I think when we first taught, especially the step numbers, I was like, it has to look just alike. You have to look uniform. Everything has to be in sync. But once they got the steps, I said, okay, now within that, show me your personality. Mm. So there's some parts of the step where it's all together, it's all in sync, and there's some parts where you can see, like, there'll be one person stepping, or there'll be two people doing one step, but another two people doing a different step all at the same time. So you see all these individual personalities coming out through the group step. Ruka? I, I think particularly in the last number, it's sort of about we are in this community, we're all one, and, you know, but at the same time, we have so many individual sort of isms that are in the collective. And so my whole mission was to just feel free to sort of like express who that is and who that body is. There's a reference in one part of the show where the character talks about the barbershop and this idea of feeling like as a queer black man walking into Mm -hmm. this sort of homogenous space and feeling like you had to wear a mask because you didn't want to sort of be found out. You know, I can relate to that in my own way. So I felt like this is this opportunity to sort of open up the space and just be comfortable, be in your skin, right? Sort of representing and referencing that idea of like a queer utopia within the Black community. This is a uh, production that for a lot of people will you know, so outside of their experience. Obviously, you're drawing people for whom are looking for some reflection of what they have gone through, and it's and it's so comforting in that way. But for many people, it will be, wow, this is a whole lot hitting me. You know, there's mm-hmm. all these cultural mm-hmm. dynamics with the dance and the singing and then the story itself because there's a tension there between the Christianity, the queerness, you know, the black church's kind of uncomfortableness uh, around these issues and young men trying to find themselves. All of that's going on at the same time. And then you have these fantastic pieces that you all have pulled together as part of the production, and yet you charge with not overshadowing what's also going on in the play. That's a tough balance. I mean, for all three of us, we were saying that the, the story is the most important thing because like I said in previous productions there hadn't been dance or step of course there was the music but how does the step how does the choreography how does the music further the story that's already there Mm -hmm. because the story I was like okay this gonna further the story is this gonna hinder the story and as far as like where does the step come from like in a musical they tell you like the music happens when you can't talk about it anymore you have Mm. to sing about it Mm. dance Mm -hmm. comes from when you can't you can't sing about it anymore you have to move your body so like where does that step come from because you were talking about how like step is usually you know this happy joyful Mm -hmm. thing but Mm -hmm. like now we're stepping because we're angry or we're stepping because we're sad, you know? So it's all those things about where where does the step come from? What emotion does the step come from? Mm-hmm. I also believe that the majority of the powerful dance that you see in the show is in the first 15 minutes. 
And that sets the audience's mind up that you're invested because you see their potential, you see their ability, you see their power, you see their beauty, and therefore it automatically makes you invested in the story. It automatically makes you care about what happens to them when they're just talking to each other, interacting with each other, because you've already seen what they look like when they're unified and doing things together. You believe in the power of this story. So let me just say something else, because we're saying step and we're saying the choral arrangements, the hymns, like, yeah, yeah, you know, anybody can learn this. This is really (laughs) hard. I need for my listeners to know how hard this is. First of all, I'm a failed stepper. Oh, oh, my my sorority sister said, really, seriously, sorority, just sit down. No, no, you can't do it. I mean, it is really hard. And then, you know what? It took me till after the play, David, to realize Everybody's singing a cappella. It's so rich. You think you're hearing music. <laughs> right? This is yeah. so hard. Yeah. And if you cannot sing, you cannot sing a cappella. Auditions were <laughs> amazingly intense. We had yeah. a lot of people come out, and the first thing that they had to do was sing in four part harmony mm-hmm. with a song they'd never heard before because I wrote the arrangement. I said, Here's the music. You're singing this, you're singing that, you're singing that. Oh my and then God. They, and then they had to <laughs> sing their own part, not with friends, but they had to hold their own in a four-part arrangement, and a lot of people got cut uh, <laughs> very quickly because I'm like, if you can't do that, then this is not going to work. We were blessed with eight people that yeah. tore up those auditions, and yeah. you, you see the result. Yeah. We knew that that's what we needed to make these uh, musical moments yeah. Effective. I must say the dancing was at first a little, it's a, it was a lot challenging for a lot of the dancers <laughs> to get those sort of complicated rhythms. But, you know, Alvin Ailey once said, dance is from the people and it must be delivered back to the people. So we had to keep coming back to this idea that this was a human effort and it came from just being in the village and the community were coming up with these steps, right? So this isn't some esoteric sort of thing that you sort of have to at- attain to. It's in you already, mm. you know? So the, the persistence and the repetition and the rehearsals. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of them are dancers, but right. they've never stepped before. Right. There's only one person in the cast that, that step was in, is like in a fraternity yeah. and like knows yeah. step, but the rest of them were like, what is happening? Yes. <laughs> so but that, I think me, I that know. we naturally have those rhythms rhythms in our bodies, you know? They're already there. They're already there. so it was just like, oh, because I I know when I teach step, I always say, listen to the rhythm first. Before Mm -hmm. you even try any of the steps, just close your eyes or open them, but listen to the rhythm. And you'll hear. There's another element to this because this is a you know overall it's a heavy topic. Yet there is a lot of humor mm-hmm. in this piece. So yeah. you're also charged with balancing out so that you don't squash the humor. Sort mm-hmm. of uplift that and weave in and out around it so that it's it's all of a piece. Mm-hmm. That seemed to me to be. I, I commend you for what you did there as well. Thank you. And also, you you know, we had a great director, uh, Maurice Emanuel Parent. My gosh, he... He's a yeah. nitpicky guy, and he will make yeah. sure that it is right. We will run. Well, he was over almost like again. a koi choreographer. Yeah. yeah, you know, consistent, always sort of like, I want this kind of feeling here. What kind of move do you do to do this kind of feeling? You know, right. it's, and uh, it also came from the <laughs> actors too. Like, yeah. if you're angry, yeah. what are you feeling? What is your movement when yeah. you are yeah. you're in the spirit right now? What 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 does your body feel like it wants to do? That's right. Well, I also yeah. thought that it helped because the piece has a vague contemporary setting, but then there's a lot of right now pop culture references because I guess the play keeps getting updated every time yeah. it moves around, yeah. which is very, yeah, very, yeah. very important. So here's a question for all of you. What does this play mean in this moment? 
I can't think of too many theatrical pieces that call out the black church for their own homophobia. As a church minister, minister of music and as a Christian, I think this piece is terribly important and timely. And in fact, I think it was written right around the time same-sex marriage was, was legalized mm. during the Obama administration and the black church came out as opposed to the president and started writing petitions and all kinds of stuff. And, and I remember that time being uncomfortable, and I believe that's right, right around the same time the choir boy was first created. It's a call out to people to wake up and to recognize that queer black people are a marginalized group in their own supposedly safe spaces and that this is an attempt to help bridge the gap and to help reclaim their place within black society and black communities. Okay. Ruka? I agree. You know, being a queer black man growing up in the church, my grandfather was a, a bishop. I can remember feeling being loved by God, but at the same time, I felt so depressed by my own community not to be fully who I felt I was and not to fully sort of express myself. And I think this is a call out to sort of be empathetic to your community and really, really, really love the bodies that are next to you. Embrace those bodies. I mean, because, you know, there are so many similarities between the plight of the black male for civil rights, but also the parallel to queer rights. And it's mm -hmm. such a deeply embedded problem within the black community of like homophobia that we just sort of need to address so that there aren't any more catastrophes of young black men committing suicides and, you know, not feeling like they have a place to go. You wonder what they say. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would just be kind of repeating what they said. In the rehearsal process, Maurice talked a lot about... The director. The director, mm. sorry. The, the director, Maurice Emanuel Parent, <laughs> um, talked about who in the show has passing privilege. And we talk about passing as somebody who, you know, walks into the room and can you tell if they're gay or not, you know? Or what, what kind of mask do you have to put on to not be found out in the church, in the barbershop? So it's kind of the story about, like, who has passing privilege and how, mm -hmm. why do we have to put on these, these masks? We shouldn't have to, you know? Mm -hmm. All right. Those are my guests from Choir Boy. Thank you all for joining me. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Yawande Odero Yinbo is a Boston-based actor, dancer, and co-choreographer for Choir Boy. Ruka White is an assistant professor of dance at the Boston Conservatory at Berkeley and co-choreographer of Choir Boy. And David Freeman Coleman is a choral director and lecturer of music at Tufts University and music director for Choir Boy. You can see Choir Boy in performance at Speakeasy Stage Company, Calderwood Pavilion, now until October 19th. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley. And like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our intern is Melissa Rosales. Our engineer is John Parker. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. Mm -hmm.